Thank you very much. Um, I uh, really want to start um, my presentation uh, with observations in the previous talks, as well as, as what Philip was just saying, um, really highlighting the fact that the impacts of these potential or forecast or speculated changes um, really depends very much upon the adaptive capacity. And the case I want to make is that there's a lot of concern, I think, around that adaptive capacity, particularly in the case of agriculture and food security uh, in Africa. So I first want to remind us um, the importance of agricultural growth to this development paradigm that Philip has perhaps called into question. Um, that development paradigm is very much alive and well um, in any of the uh, foundations or agencies that you might see devoted to African agriculture. Um, however, the reality of that is that agriculture employs, on average, for Sub-Saharan Africa, about 60% of the labor. It only contributes about 30% of its gross domestic product. So it's, it's still very much portrayed as important to growth because of our belief that we don't get on to um, good uh, economic growth pathways without going through this process of agriculture becoming profitable. Um, but as, I mean, I'm sure is more than familiar to many of you, agriculture, African agriculture hasn't delivered upon that, upon that promise. Um, and what I want to, 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 to remind us of as well um, is that alleviating food security, food insecurity is already a challenge. Um, and so as I'll show you in, in the next slide, um, hungry seasons persist throughout much of Sub-Saharan Africa. Not, that may not mean that, that on average everyone everywhere in Sub-Saharan Africa is hungry, but food insecurity is a, is a major constraint to, um, to overcoming poverty, to, to agriculture, um, children within Africa building the, um, the human de uh, development capacity, attaining the educational levels that are necessary to put them on, um, to, to contribute to, uh, to, to growth. And so if I show you um, some of this um, recent data from FAO 2009, the prevalence of undernourishment, you'll see that um, for uh, Central and East Africa, um, Central Africa, there's, not, there's been increases. Much of that is conflict-related. Conflict For East Africa, there's been some decreases um, up to 2003, 2005. Similarly, in Sub-Saharan Africa, but compared to the rest of the world, undernourishment is still uh, an ongoing um, issue of concern, and that's why, um, for those within the development community, the ability of Africa to meet the so-called Millennium Development Goal by 2015 of having, having hunger. Um, we're, not, we're not on a pathway to, to, having, to having hunger. Um, and then what I want to really um, draw your attention to uh, is what happened in 2007 and 2008. Um, we may have all forgotten it now because our food baskets are, 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 fair, are, are doing fairly well. But there was a, a sharp, pronounced food price crisis across commodities. And what was so notable, and so the first point is that that's actually resulted, as Philip ended, up, um, ended his presentation, within one extra billion people needing food aid um, according to WFP, so that's, that's probably the most conservative estimate of people who've actually been affected in a significant way in terms of their access to food um, through that 2007-2008 food price crisis. And that's because high food prices um, and high input prices have persisted in much of East and Southern Africa, and I'll go into some of the reasons for that um, in a minute. But before that, I want to draw your attention to the fact that what 2007-2008 taught us is that climate shocks in one place, for example, ongoing drought in Australia, contributing to um, high prices for, uh, for wheat, um, compounded with 
more, let's say, localized uh, problems in countries in sub-Saharan Africa, for example, um, Malawi and Kenya, where they are used to not meeting their, um, their, their production um, goals. It, they have ripple effects in globalized food systems. And so um, we saw this um, complex set of interactions between national level climate shocks having ripples out to international food markets and further complicating that fact. The reaction of many countries, including um, uh, those um, in, in, in parts of Africa, to impose at, um, trade barriers or export bans um, uh, um, prolonged, sorry, someone's bag has just fallen over, prolonged um, the, the, the um, persistence of these, high, of these high food prices. Okay, so let's think back to what these radical transitions that Philip highlighted in his talk. What, what might those actually look like for, for, for African food systems? Well, we could have livelihood transitions for producers. So in those areas where agriculture is no longer tenable, that means people forget just diversifying out of agriculture. It means stopping it altogether, looking for employment somewhere else. They may look for employment in those urban areas. Maybe they'll all migrate to Kenya um, because it, it looks to be the place where, uh, where possibly agriculture might benefit, although I'll, I'll, I'll raise some questions about that. Um, at a, at perhaps slightly less drastically, we'll see changes in cropping patterns, okay? But that means all sorts of changes for the kinds of agricultural technologies and packages that farmers currently use, that, that, that they'll, that they'll um, so it's requiring them to, to make big changes in, in what they're comfortable with. In terms of food security, it means big changes in diets. Um, it, I think in, the, in the, the most reasonable thing that we can be fairly sure will happen is there'll be an awful lot more food relief because most of those countries that Philip showed are going to be having drastic um, decreases, 26% losses, 50% losses in beans. Perhaps if it's not more food relief, it's definitely more reliance on international markets. Well, what have we learned um, in the past 20 to 30 years of research on promoting agricultural development for smallholder poor farmers, all right? Because at a minimum, we should be worried about the impacts of this appalling um, or radical shifts in um, diet and cropping patterns for the poorest of the poor. Um, and so the first thing that we know is um, that these are, these are countries that already suffer from quite chronic poverty. Um, and the current situation means that there are an awful lot of, of, um, of, of farmers who are on the margins, okay, or exactly in those areas that Philip was telling us where it'll become much more difficult. These transitions will be happening. Um, and the current situation is such that even if they have one or two good years, it's not enough to overcome um, uh, the, the sort of long-term declines in assets that they, that, they might be, um, that they might be experimenting in. Social protection is often promoted as the, um, an answer to this, to, to this, but in the two case studies I'm going to look at in a minute, these are very often um, short-term in nature. They're linked to food aid. They don't, they don't really have uh, a government national level safety net um, in place in the, in, in, in the ways that you and I would think of. The second, perhaps more um, worrying thing for the case of a world that relies much more on trade is um, the lessons we've learned about the difficulty of getting markets, not just so that food prices are stabilized when you get a price shock like we did in 2008 or places like Zambia and Kenya get every two to three years, um, but also for helping farmers to be able to take advantage of perhaps these, um, these improved opportunities. <clears throat> the third point we've learned is that Farmers are often very risk averse, and particularly the poorest of the poor. They tend to use diversification as a risk management strategy rather than as a wealth accumulating strategy. And so 
For example, the lessons that we've learned around helping farmers with um, inf uh, seasonal forecast information is that without, again, this social um, and, and uh, um, the social safety net and um, access to credit, access to up-to-date, accurate agricultural um, information, farmers are very risk averse to taking on a new risk. And, and research on, um, on, on poverty traps, which, which small farmers are able to move themselves out of staying in poverty as opposed to farmers, farmers that either stay trapped in poverty or get into a negative spiral, um, shows that it very much depends upon their ability um, and that's a combination of their assets as well as their access to these support networks um, to, to, to use diversification as a, as a wealth accumulating strategy or, or merely using it to survive um, or, 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 or not starve. Um, and, then, and then lastly, um, implementing, some of the, implementing uh, this option of, of, more, of more food relief as a, as a, as a, as a mechanism um, to deal with a, a um, drastic uh, um, reduced availability of food is, is what we've learned about um, reforming food security monitoring and, and relief institutions. Um, although this is an area where there's been quite a lot of improvement um, in, terms of, in terms of monitoring, be able, being able to be pro, um, somewhat more proactive about responding to food security um, relief, uh, 2008 and 2009, in part because of the food price crisis, but also because of donor fatigue, has really seen a shortfall um, in uh, in, in, in food aid availability. Okay, this is just some, some data looking at um, production trends uh, in, in Kenya. Um, but you'll see again that, it, I mean, if I had rainfall data on here, you'll see that, that maize production in Kenya is very, um, very much linked to, uh, to rainfall availability. You'll also see um, that food aid received has spiked in 2000, 1999, 2000, the last time Kenya had a, had a very prolonged drought. If this went all the way out to 2008, you'd see that, that, that those food aid numbers um, have gone back up again. And that's because Kenya is currently experiencing the worst drought it's had in, in at least a decade, if, if not several. Um, what I want to show you here is that, um, irrespective perhaps of the, of the production um, trends, is that maize prices, uh, domestic maize prices in Kenya have gone sharply up uh, since 2006 um, to 2008. And that is primarily because of um, the worldwide um, maize uh, um, price increase. So if we think about some of these institutional issues that I've raised for Kenya, Kenya is typically a maize importing country. Now perhaps that will change, but I guess what I would like to say um, in response to the per perhaps slightly optimistic picture that some of you may think that Philip has painted for Kenya is there's a big gap between where Kenya is right now, suffering a decade of drought, 10 million people, um, as a conservative estimate needing food aid in 2009, the reality that only 48% of their emergency um, uh, response program has actually been funded. Uh, those um, livestock herders that uh, Philip was pointing to, 40% of the national herd has been lost in 2009. Um, so for, for Kenya to, to get to a place where it could perhaps begin to take advantage of, of those, um, of those Im improved growing conditions is a is, 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 still a, um, is still a big question, and that, that in part has to do um, with some of what I've mentioned about our ability to support farmers through these livelihood transitions. But if you look particularly at pastoral and agro-pastoral areas, um, not only have they been suffering um, droughts uh, throughout the last um, decade quite badly, but we know that they're in areas that are poorly integrated into markets. I've seen Philip present other work where he's, looked, he's sort of mapped those growing degree days with indicators of access to markets, poverty rates, access to education. And so we haven't, 
we're already not doing very well at helping these more marginal poor farmers to take advantage of, of, of good years and new opportunities. So I think it poses a big challenge um, for Kenya to, to, to move on to perhaps that, um, that, uh, that, uh, that happier pathway. Um, and let's not forget that in 2008, 2009, the political crisis in Kenya has completely overwhelmed its ability to respond even to, again, its current, its, its current food crisis. Um, I should, however, and this is perhaps, there's a, there's a cord here that when you step on it, it, um, it, goes, it does that thing to you. One thing I do want to say, and this is where perhaps Kenya, um, what, you'll see that I have here this KFSSG monitoring efforts. Kenya is often held up to the rest of um, East and Southern Africa for its attempts to form this thing called the Kenya Food Security Steering Group. Um, and it's really, it's, it's um, it, I mean, I don't want to paint an, an, a completely negative picture. Um, the international and national um, NGOs and, and um, uh, governmental agencies within Kenya have formed this collaborative coordinating steering group. And so what it means is that they, they are much better at monitoring food security um, indicators, uh, prices for staple commodities, prices for livestock, particularly in these arid and semi-arid areas where they know food insecurity um, is occurring. What's not been met is their ability to respond quickly. So you'll still find that drought-affected communities in the north wait four to five months uh, to get um, either, the, either the cash or the food relief that they're waiting for. This year, Kenya tried to implement um, a somewhat innovative livestock purchasing scheme because so many of the, of the cattle had died and there were these, I was just there two weeks ago and there are these pictures all over the front page of the newspaper. Um, the livestock offtake scheme hadn't been as widespread as it needed to be and a lot of those cattle, once they got um, to this big uh, area in Nairobi, died as opposed to being slaughtered and, 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 and sold in an efficient manner. So, okay. Let's now look at, um, right, at Zambia which is perhaps a contrasting case, um, although Phillips' results have suggested to us that the outlook for Zambia is much worse. The, pro the prognosis for Zambia has actually been better in the last decade. Um, I mean, everyone remembers 2002, uh, when you'll see, 2001, 2002, so you'll see that, that maize yields were very um, low and then they, 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 they improved quite quickly in the, in the, in the case of Zambia. Um, uh, Yep, you'll also see, I only have two more slides. You'll also see, um, again, the, the, the price spikes um, in, in maize related to the 2001-2002 um, uh, uh, droughts throughout Southern Africa. But you'll notice that maize prices have, have somewhat leveled off um, for Zambia. And so Zambia is painted, at least in the eyes of agricultural economists, as doing somewhat better, particularly making progress on some of these institutional barriers that I've highlighted. Um, and so uh, poverty, Poverty has, um, has slightly uh, gone down, particularly for, um, for agricultural households in Zambia. One of the things that people have noted is that there's been a, a big trend towards um, diversification of diets. So um, maize production, um, number of uh, maize producing households hasn't actually increased. Instead, of more households are starting to go into cassava. Now, people like that because cassava does better in, in dry years. Um, or um, on, um, ver highly variable years than maize. Maize is not, a, uh, not really a very good crop um, if there's a late rainfall or, or, or not enough. Um, however, in drought years um, or in low production years, Zambia relies very heavily on regional markets. And South Africa is the major supplier for maize to the rest of Southern Africa and, and even parts of the rest of Africa. And now I think we've all just seen from Philip that South Africa is going to be hit really hard. So what will it mean um, 
for Zambia and other countries in Southern Africa when they can no longer rely on South Africa um, for, um, for, its, uh, for its maize. Um, the other um, uh, criticisms that, that came out around Southern Africa, particularly after the 2002 and 2003, which was the last time there was a widespread um, food security crisis in the region, is that crop reporting data in the region is still quite unreliable. So Southern, Southern Africa, interestingly, hasn't made all of the progress um, in, uh, in, in, in tracking crop monitoring data, having a proactive take on, um, on where, where hunger might, um, might occur, although it is, it is improving slowly. Um, the other uh, real area where Southern Africa gets criticized is, uh, is this issue of trade barriers. And so again in 2008, Zambia and Malawi all imposed um, uh, trade barriers and uh, again that, that has the impact of, of, of at least locally incre increasing maize prices. So what are my conclusions? Um, I think to date we don't have very much evidence about a robust adaptive capacity even to take a chance, uh, advantage of opportunities um, in East and Southern Africa. Very little evidence of our ability to support poor, poor farmers and food insecure households and largely that's because of very limited social protection um, and, and very limited efforts to really support the, um, uh, agricultural uh, risk taking. Still an awful lot of debates about, about markets and how, how, how well they can handle these um, fluctuations in prices. Um, I think for, for a future, um, the, the big issue, particularly in the medium to, to long term, is going to be the availability of food imports. So African food security doesn't just depend upon production in Africa, it also pretends, depends upon what's going on in the rest of the world. And so I think that, that really blows open this question of what's the future for African livelihoods and um, are we naive to continue to push uh, a, a growth through agricultural development agenda. Thank you.